trials and the goodness of God. We have prayer groups and a number of things. I want to just go through this, uh, not rushed, but not wasting time either. The text we're going to look at is Psalm 119, verse 71. Psalm 119, 71. Do you have that in your notes? Read it out loud with me. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I heard fairly recently uh, Kenneth Copeland emphatically declaring that whenever Christians experience sickness, pain, persecution, or poverty, we must never attribute these things to our good God. Not ever. They are always the work of Satan or the work of Satan through people because our good God never does any of these evil things. Satan does them. That isn't really the topic of this study tonight. But it does fly in the face of some pretty clear teaching from God's word. Some scriptures that just make it very, very difficult to always categorically rule out God's hand, his sovereign hand, when we face times of difficulty or pain or trial. Exodus 4, 10 to 12. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. So God wants to send Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh. And Moses doesn't want to go. He does that, here am I, send Aaron speech. I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord, not Satan, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? And by the way, it's a rhetorical question. What does God expect Moses to say? Well, you have. Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Who makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. The Bible just doesn't always yield to our tastes and our likes, and sometimes even to our theologies. But, there's still no denying that the Bible teaches God is good. He is always good. And the very psalm we're studying tonight, or at least a verse from it, says that pretty explicitly in verse 68. You are good, and you do good. That's the conclusion. So there's no denying that God is good, and there's no denying that God does good. The problem is, the psalmist goes on to say, just three verses later, that it was good that he was afflicted. God is good. God always does good. God afflicted the psalmist. So you got those things that are pretty hard to pull apart. So how can this affliction be good? So we're not sitting here tonight, you know, uh, discussing um, sort of mental web spinning of intricate, intricate questions of 
non-theological significance. Can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? Or other ridiculous issues that people seem to like to discuss. This isn't just philosophic meat grinding. This has to do with how you keep your heart in times of trial. Whether you've been a Christian for a short period of time or quite a while, if you haven't experienced times of difficulty and trial as a Christian, you will. It's not if, it's just when. And you have to figure out where you're going to land on this issue, what you're going to do with trials that don't go away, with problems that bring pain or loneliness or heartache. How are you going to wed that with the view of the psalmist, you are good and you do good? What ideas of God sweep over your soul when life brings trial? It has to do with whether or not you're forced to play that kind of spiritual make-believe, you know, where you just keep confessing something that you know isn't true. That kind of faith is just pretending. There are thousands of Christians who have built the doctrine of God. There is nothing crueler than bad theology. And there are countless Christians who have built a doctrine of God that forces them to pretend that their afflictions don't exist or that it's always just because of a lack of faith and it's a very cruel use of the scriptures. So there's a lot riding on this little verse from Psalm 119. I can't think of a little verse that flies more in the face of what many Christians and many churches believe and teach than that little text. I don't think we go around looking for affliction. I don't. Most of the time, we look at afflictions as things that are evil, not good. Most of the time, we think of them as coming from Satan and not from God, or at least from the fall. And I'm not denying these other things come into play as well. Many times it's true. Jesus said the devil came to kill and to steal and to destroy. Look at the New Testament. Jesus didn't go around making people sick. He went around making them whole. That's all true, but it's, but it's just too simplistic to land there and make that the whole story. It's, it's like a large picture puzzle. You have to fit all the pieces in to get the whole picture, to see the whole story. So there it is, Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Well, Pastor Don, there it is. See, it doesn't say that it was God afflicting him. It just says that it was good for him that he was afflicted. And I'm going to get to that. Technically, you're right. But I think you'll see a bigger picture by the time we're done with this study. I think it's easy to see the two big ideas in that short verse. David says that his afflictions were good. Even though they were painful, they were good, not bad. It is good for me. 
that I was afflicted. That's not rocket science. I think it's just a bare, most of the words are just one syllable. I think we can see that. David says, this wasn't a bad thing. David says, this was a good thing. And the second thing, David says, is his afflictions taught him God's statutes. Satan is not out to teach you God's statutes, church. And yet, David says that his afflictions taught him God's statutes and taught him that in a way that pleasures never did. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So those are the key ideas. Apparently, it's not God's plan to remove all the trials and all the afflictions from my life or from yours. We might as well settle on that. One day that will be true, but not yet. He graciously removes some, but he loves us too much to remove them all. So the key, apparently, according to our text, is to, is to learn God's purpose in the afflictions that he chooses not to remove, at least not quickly. This is the key to understanding and Growth, Because once you know, once you really know the truth of that verse, apparently afflictions can create faith and confidence in God that can stand up and grow through what might appear to be just dark, lonely, troublesome times. You, you will begin to see more of the goodness of the Lord than you imagined, even in the middle of your trial. I want to go through principles that I think are biblical, we're all growing in them, principles I try to cling to, and they always require the exercise of faith. Point number one, the good God is working for in my life is not my comfort, but my confirmation to Christ. Whenever anyone, God or anyone, is involved in the shaping of your life, it's important to know the goal they have. If you don't understand the goal of their actions, you will constantly misread their intentions. When I was a kid, I thought that every teacher that gave us homework was mean and wicked and cruel. How well I remember, I see, I see him sitting there tonight, how well I remember picking up my kids from the dentist when Dave Charters was the dentist. And you'd pick them up and be driving home and there'd be Laurel or Melissa in the back of the car. Uh, Dr. Charters, he says he's a Christian, but I don't know. He's... <laughs> you thought your parents were cruel when they refused all of your requests, when they they were unreasonable when they established a curfew. You can go down the list, all sorts of things. When they made you go to the doctor. But that's only because you were too young or too foolish to have a clear picture of what their goal was in what they were doing. You only saw the action and you couldn't or didn't have a deep understanding of the intention behind the action. So, so what is God's goal in everything he does in my life? That's a very basic question. What is God's goal in everything 
that he does in your life. What is he trying to do when he involves himself, not just when we're here at church singing songs and praying, but in daily life, throughout the week? Good things happen, bad things happen. What is God's goal in the circumstances of the days of my week? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess. God is very gracious and the Bible is very clear. You know these words, Romans 8, 28, 29. For we know, it's important that you know this. That's why he's reminding us. This is a basic understanding to following Christ in this world. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those are the words. Conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be, that's his son, his son might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's really, we, we put more attention on verse 28 than 29 usually. But that last phrase in verse 29 is, is amazing. That he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's going to shape our lives in this world to be like Christ... And it would seem sacrilegious to say it if the text didn't say it. That God wants, God wants this uh, spiritual genetic tie to the son. Brothers, sisters, a, a family resemblance to the son. There's, there is a spiritual linkage to be created in all of our hearts... Through what God does in the circumstances of our lives, there's a spiritual linkage to be created with the Son. And the Son, by the way, found more suffering in the Father's will than anyone else ever will. But he wasn't outside of God's will. Right? That's how redemption worked. And so... And so Paul says, Here, here's, what, here's what God's goal is. He's, his goal is to work in your life like he worked in the son's life, incarnate, here on earth. Not that your life is redemptive in that sense. I don't mean that. But the, the fulfillment of his will. He wants to shape you like Christ in this world. And so, we see this is why God saved you. This is why God saved you. Please hear it tonight. It might surprise you. God didn't save anybody just because he thought their life, their life was in a jam and he had nothing else to do. Why did he save you? Well, he just loves us. Well, he does love you and he loves me and that's a precious truth. But God doesn't just do anything. Why did he save you? Well, he saved you and he saved me as a project, a work project. In other words, salvation doesn't just have to do with how you get into the kingdom. Salvation has to do with what he's making you in his kingdom. And what he wants to make you is he wants to make you and me like Jesus. Forgiving you wasn't the end of the project. Forgiving you was the beginning 
of the project. You were saved and you are being saved right now. He is working on you and he is working on me. Now from the moment of my new birth, God uses every tool at his disposal and every event of my life to make me less like I was in my fallen self and more like his son is, Jesus Christ. That's the only reason, by the way, that God leaves us here on earth instead of taking us all to heaven immediately upon our conversion. The reason is he wants to make us so totally different from the world around us and so much like Jesus Christ that our witness will bring others to heaven with us later on. We know that's his purpose because he said that if we ever lose that distinguishing spiritual life, if the salt loses its savor, how good is it? He says it's useless. So, God, by the inward work of his Holy Spirit, he labors to conform all of us to the likeness of Christ, conformed to the image of his Son. And and here's the really important part of this. That is so important to our Heavenly Father that he will sacrifice everything else about us, if need be, to get that done. If I forget that idea it will be very difficult for me to make sense of much of what God does in my life day by day. Once you lose this, you lose the big picture. God becomes just, you know, the divine genie. Granting us all of our wishes. And when he doesn't, we get a little ticked off. He has one primary goal... And he will sacrifice everything else about me to get that goal accomplished, including my comfort. In other words, God, in his wise love, will do whatever it takes to me to make me less worldly than I presently am. He will do whatever it takes to make me more patient than I presently am. By the way, how does he make you and me more patient. Do you know how he does it? He brings irritating people into your life. No, I'm serious. Isn't that true? You can't get patience praying for it. That's why he has you coming to Cedarview Community Church. You, you will get just enough, you will get just enough abuse in any church on planet Earth so that you're forced to either blow up, quit, get mad, and expose your worldly heart, or grow in patience. That's how the Holy Spirit works. It's not magic potions. God will do anything he has to do to make me more patient, and I will enjoy none of it. God will do anything he has to do to make me more trusting. It is true, right? Our faith, Peter says, more precious than gold. To whom? To to God. 
How does he cause me to grow in faith? By giving me everything I want right away? Is that how you teach trust? Or is there a better way? He will do whatever it takes to make me less materialistic and less idolatrous with material things. I wonder how he would do that. How do you think he might do that? Who do you think causes the price of oil to drop? Is, is a sovereign God involved in these things? What's he trying to do? He will do whatever it takes to help me learn to call upon his name with greater earnestness and passion. I wonder how he will do that. So, this is the understanding that has to frame the rest of the discussion. This is the good God is dedicated to bringing about in my life. And this is the good that David said had helped him in his affliction. Okay, point number two. God is so loving and so wise and so powerful that he can accomplish this good through times of affliction. And here's the important part. Regardless of the source of the affliction. Let me just offer you some humble advice. This is my opinion. I can't show you chapter and verse for this. Unless unless God makes this vividly clear to you, and you confirm it with other wise believers, the backing of scripture, my advice would be don't spend a lot of time tracking the source of your trials and afflictions. It it will get you nowhere. It will get you nowhere fast. You can wear yourself out second-guessing whether the trying situation you're in is the work of the devil or the chastening of the Lord or just the thoughtlessness of some goofy, fallen human being. Many times it is incredibly difficult with the limited understanding and perspective that we have. It's incredibly difficult to directly see where is this coming from in my life. And it's a tragedy when we get it mixed up. I wonder how many times, I just throw it out to you, I wonder how many times Christians are in difficult situations and they're screaming out, binding Satan, when all the while it's the chastening hand of the Lord trying to purify and change something in their lives. And what fruitless, useless praying that would be. Many times it's hard to recognize the source of the trial when you're right in the middle of it. And I want to tell you why I don't think it's that important. Let me give you something more important to think about when you're afflicted. And that's just this general term, afflicted. Whatever the source, I want to say to you, whatever the source, God can use it to make you more like Christ if you wait patiently and meekly draw close to him in trust and patience. I think I can prove that to you just from the clear teaching of the scriptures, and that's how I want to wrap this up. A, God can work in our lives when other people are thoughtless and downright wicked to us. You're going to bump into this sooner or later. 
I've discovered. Isn't it an amazing discovery when you find out that other people aren't as wonderful as you are? God can work in our lives when other people are thoughtless and downright wicked. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, Joseph speaks against his brothers who who were just abusive and cruel and mean and would have killed him. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's a wonderful verse. It's a wonderful verse. It tells me that God can override the evil deeds of others toward me if I keep my heart right toward him, keep looking to him. If I don't take revenge into my own hands, if I don't allow anger or bitterness to set in, which is not easy to do when someone is clearly, hatefully mistreating you and repeatedly doing so. I want to hold this out to you as one of the best things you'll ever hear from the pulpit of any church. You can't lose whatever mean people do to you, you cannot lose if you respond in a Christ-like fashion. Did everybody hear that? You can't lose because there is a sovereign God who can take the wicked actions of others, and if your heart is right, he can bring good out of it. He can shape something in your life that's going to last for eternity and be a witness to his grace in this world. So that's what happens when people mistreat us. Here's something else. B, God can work good in our lives when the devil tempts and attacks. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 9. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Notice these two purposes here. It's really striking. A messenger from Satan to harass me. That was Satan's intention. Just harassing, like a wasp when you're having a picnic on your deck on a warm day, just bugging you. That was Satan's intention. But God is involved too to keep me from becoming conceited. Do you see the two different things? One is just harassing. But because because Paul recognizes that God can work in all circumstances, even when Satan is harassing him, it turns out to be something that keeps him humble. Harassing is bad. Being kept humble is good. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest. Who would have thought that this messenger from Satan turns out to be the power of Christ resting on him? Isn't that amazing? It 
It's a fascinating verse. Both parties, God and Satan, involved somehow in Paul's thorn in the flesh. But they don't have equal say. Satan's work is allowed by God, and in ways we probably fully can't understand right now, Satan's work is used by God to bring about the power of Christ in Paul's life. Not for Paul's comfort, but for Paul's good, for Paul's ultimate good. So, not only do we not need to fear the devil, but God is actually able to bring growth through anything he sees fit to allow to transpire in my life. If my heart is pure, God will always do one of two things with the attacks of Satan on my mind and on my life. Most of the time he will prevent it. 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him. The evil one does not touch him. Most of the time he will prevent it. But secondly, sometimes he will actually use the tactics of the devil to sharpen and deepen my spiritual life. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited? Now, let me ask you something. What do you think is more frustrating to the devil? To be disallowed any possibility of direct contact with Christians in any way? Do you think that's more frustrating? Or, just when some opening is granted... Satan finds the Spirit of God actually deepening my commitment to the cause of Christ through something the devil wants to do in my life. Which do you think Satan finds more frustrating? That one's got to just make him run home bawling. So, we've seen. Remember, the principle I laid out is it doesn't matter the source. Nothing that comes at you can do anything but conform you to Christ if you respond properly. And we've looked at two things. Works of other people, bad people, wicked people, mean people. Now we've looked at things from Satan when he tempts and when he, when he bugs, manifests himself in our lives. And the third thing is another source. C, God can work in our lives by his own times of direct discipline and chastening. This is not Satan. This is not other people. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The actual word for illegitimate children in the Greek I can't say in church. I think you get the idea. That is, that is the word in the Greek. And so, yes, there's this clear teaching from Scripture that God, at times, at times, intentionally brings trial and affliction into our lives. I'm sorry, Kenneth Copeland is simply wrong on that point. There is, as the psalmist said in our text, a kind of affliction that helps us to learn God's statutes, that teaches us to listen to God in a deeper and more careful way. So the important point is, 
Remember what I said. The important point is not the source of your affliction. I listed those three sources, man, Satan, God. The important point is not the source, because God can work with any one of them for my good if I keep my heart patient, in the word, in the fellowship of the church, not bitter. He can work all things together for my good. And the good is not my comfort. And the good is not my wealth. And the good is not my health. The good is anything that makes me more like Christ Jesus. So learn to expect to see God's hand in all the circumstances of your life. Not, not, just, not just delivering you. He does do that. Praise God. We pray for those kinds of things. God's healing grace, God's touch, God's blessing. But not just delivering you, but maturing you and transforming you and getting you ready for heaven and weaning you off the things of this world and helping you to look to him in trust as your only resource. He's able to work everything from every source. That's how big our God is. To make us like Christ. And that's a God worthy of praise. Let's pray.